0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're in Romans chapter 6. Now, as we mentioned last week, we just finished uh, a series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, so today we're starting a new mini series, be three weeks, and uh, we're going to be studying the topic of baptism. Baptism. And uh, I-, I realize that every series that we start, I say exactly the same thing. There's no variance. Every time I just open up, and, and I mean it, it's sincere, but it's very rote. And it's I'm so excited about the new series that we are opening up to today, and that's always sincere because usually I've spent months, at least weeks, thinking about the book we're going to study or the theme or whatever it might be, Um, and that's true today, but I want to open this series with a different introduction. I want to open with an apology, an apology. we are a, we still, we still are a church plant. We really are. I mean, the fact that we're in a building and we're not setting stuff up in the elementary school anymore, that belies uh, our, our real age and maturity because it looks as if we're more established and we've covered more ground than we really have. We're still pretty young. And so God is laying foundations in the life of our church. And this foundation... Um, The truth and the teaching, application, practice of baptism, is a foundation that really hasn't been laid so clearly in our church yet, and it should have. It should have already been laid in the foundation of our church. We've been pretty loose on the topic. We've been we've been pretty loose on the sacraments in general, baptism and communion. Um, We've been pretty loose in teaching. We've been pretty loose in application. that is holding baptisms. We've been pretty loose uh, in, in having policy because uh, every church has to have a policy as to how you're going to administer the, the sacraments. Um, so we have been uh, pretty loose on that and, and really haven't laid that foundation well. And I, and I just take full responsibility for that. I mean, the pastors of the church lead the church and oversee the church, but it's my specific job description to uh, be involved in helping Um, navigate the teaching the Sunday morning teaching ministry of the church and so uh, I I feel certainly responsible for this so if someone asked me what would you do differently in planting being involved in the planting of Grace Church this would be an area I would say what we're going to communicate in the next three weeks should have been communicated in year one maybe year two of the uh, church plant but year fours uh, behind schedule and that's where we are So I'm sorry for that, thank you for your understanding, Um, and I definitely don't feel like it, there's been no malicious sinfulness, I mean there's been no, uh, you know, overt rebellion to touch this topic or anything like that. It's just, I love this topic, it's just been negligence. And uh, so I'm sorry for that, thanks for your understanding. Here's the reality, starting today, we are negligent. No more, so uh, here is the way this is going to work as a series today we 're going to look at Romans six and I want to talk about the meaning behind uh, the meaning of baptism, the meaning of baptism. I also want to talk about kind of the power uh, of baptism and what what baptism. Uh, signifies to us. So I want to talk about that. The next week I'm going to do a message that's going to be more, this will be in one text. Next week will be more topical in nature uh, as we just want to talk about some baptism issues like who should be baptized, uh, how should they be baptized, who should baptize them, uh, all those kinds of stuff, all those kinds of things. And then the next week which would be two weeks from today I I want to talk about a subject which relates to this uh, but a little bit more foundational Uh, And that is um, evangelizing children. How do we evangelize children? Is that an event or a process? Uh, How do we discern a credible profession of faith? When has a child really been regenerate? I want to talk about some of those types of things. So let's start by reading Romans 6. And I'm so excited about this new series. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray. God we thank you for your word and we come now uh, as those who want to hear from you. We ask that by your holy spirit you would speak to us through this god-breathed living word, this scripture. We pray that you would uh, that you would open our eyes to the truths of this text. Lord, I pray most of all that you would open our eyes to the one who is revealed in this text, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see his death, burial, and resurrection as never before, and I pray that we would see our union with Christ as never before. I I pray, Lord, we're asking something big, that you would speak to us, that you would enlarge our perception of you and what you've done, and that you would stir our hearts with a passion and a gratitude for who you are and what you've done, and that you would strengthen us To walk in a newness of life. Lord, that's a large request, but we believe that you desire to strengthen and empower your people. And so we know this is your will, and we ask you to do so. Lord, I pray that you would grant me physical strength, grant my voice strength, and um, speak to us today, we pray. And if there would be anyone here who's yet to meet you, may this morning be the very morning they move from spiritual death to spiritual life. Come, Spirit of God, and have your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, context is always important when we're studying the Bible. It's particularly important right here. We want to understand what's been going on in the book of Romans up to this place. Um, Paul has been talking about man's sin and about God's forgiveness, God's redemption. Uh, of people through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So, the previous chapters, he's been establishing that we are all sinful and he's been establishing that Jesus has come to save sinners. And in chapter six, he's taking a turn and he's beginning to talk about what it means to live as a Christian. So if the previous verse chapters have sort of focused on justification, that is, how we're declared to be right with God and how we begin our new life in Christ, he's now turning and beginning to talk about how we live out our Christian faith, that is, sanctification. And he's beginning to address that topic right here. Now he, prior to chapter 6, the Spirit of God has been writing this scripture and has been communicating Amazing truths about grace. He's been communicating in the previous chapters of Romans that all of us are sinful by nature. Every person, Jew and Gentile alike, he says, that's everybody, is sinful by nature. And because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. But then he said this amazing thing. That the law comes and the law reveals our sin and reveals our need for a Savior. But Jesus Christ has come with grace and his grace is greater than our sin. And he's making the point that the law reveals our sin, but the law is not doable. You cannot live according to the rules and please God and be okay with God. God is holy And we are not, and we cannot bridge that distance and that gap by obeying the rules, by keeping the law. That is impossible. So Jesus Christ comes, and he gives his life. He dies for us, and so that in him we can be forgiven and have new life. In other words, salvation is all of God, and it is not of us. And so Paul has been teaching that point, and now he is coming to a place like a good teacher, where he is, where he is anticipating where that truth might be misunderstood. He is anticipating as well where his critics might accuse him with the teaching that he's been just brought, been been, uh, been bringing, because what he has said is really astounding when you think about it. What he has said is. You are not saved by what you do. You are saved by what Christ has done for you. And so, that kind of grace is so amazing. It's not me. It's not what I've done. That grace can lead... When we really grasp that, it can lead to a line of questioning and a line of thinking that is wrong. And Paul anticipates that, and that's what he's addressing here. Here, Here's how that line of thinking can work out. Grace is so indescribably glorious because it's not what I've done, it's what God has done that makes me a Christian. Then these kind of questions can be asked. If I am not, not right with God by my works then does it really matter what I do? right? If if my works aren't going to make me right with God, then does it even matter what I really do? Or, Or another question that's stronger. If God is going to forgive what I do because of Christ, if God is going to forgive what I do anyway, can't I just go on sinning? If you've never thought that, then you've never probably understood grace as it's to be understood. Because grace is so amazing that it could lead someone to say, well then why shouldn't I just go on and sin? If he's going to forgive what I do, if it's all him, why shouldn't I? Or if we press that question even further, even stronger, it could be asked this way. If more sin means more grace, if the more I sin the more the grace of God is on display forgiving me of my sins. If more sin means more grace and God's grace is good, shouldn't we just sin so that there'll be more grace on display? I mean, the more I sin, the more the cross is and the work of the cross is, is, a, is, a, is amazing. And I want God's grace to be on display so I could be as bad as possible. And that would just elevate grace. More sin, more grace. Paul anticipates that based on the doctrine of grace in Romans, that those questions could be asked. How should we live? Now that we're Christians, now that we're forgiven, how should we live? Send more, so more grace? And that's what he addresses right here. He's anticipating. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking more sin equal more grace. Is that what you're thinking? Should we just continue sinning? Now, he doesn't mean just sin on occasion. He's saying, should we just pursue an intentional lifestyle of sin? Should we just continue like nothing's ever happened to us? Should we just continue in sin so that there'll be more grace? And then he answers what folks may be asking. By no means verse 2 some translate it may it never be it is a idiom in the original language that is the strongest imaginable objection to that question shall we continue in sin so that there's more grace never it, it's unthinkable is what he says that that's the idea here there's a, a sense of outrage he's objecting with outrage that's dreadful That's a terrible thought. That is a, it's just an unthinkable conclusion to draw from the grace of God. One British commentator I read said, that's a ghastly thought. Only a Brit would say it's a ghastly thought. But that's what it is, ghastly. That's exactly, it's a ghastly thought. It's an outrageous idea. So how is he going to respond to it? He doesn't say, that's an outrageous idea, you're all Christians, now be good. He doesn't say, well, you know the law, keep it. That's not what he says. You're a member of the church, be a good member of the church. Come on, let's get the morality up around here. That's not what he says. He responds with a question. Here's his question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a question. Hey, you're dead to sin. So if you're dead to sin, how is it even thinkable that continuing to pursue a life of sin would be appropriate or would be even... I mean, it's certainly theoretically possible. He's not saying, is, that's not even an, he's not saying it's an impossibility. But he's saying, how could that really be? That's, that's incongruous. That's not logical. That doesn't make sense. You've died to sin. So how would you continue to live in it? How could you still live in it? And then he explains his point by directing them to baptism. He directs them to baptism because baptism displays our union with Christ. And that's how Paul wants to answer this. He's not saying, let's all be good boys and girls. He's wanting to say, how can you continue to live in sin? Why would you even ask that? You've been united to Christ. That's what this passage talks about. Baptism represents our union with Christ. Now, baptism doesn't equal our union with Christ. This passage is, in the first place, not about water baptism in the first place it's about union with Christ I mean he's not saying you're un- you, you experience union with Christ when you're baptized he's not saying that the waters of baptism grant you new life he's just spent multiple chapters saying that salvation is by grace that is you can't do anything to earn it now he's not going to say you earn it by water uh, by going under the water or by being sprinkled or whatever the mode is he's not saying that it's still grace But what he is saying is that baptism represents and demonstrates what has happened to you in Christ. He uses the physical act of baptism, the physical act to point to the spiritual reality and truth that we are in union with Christ. We are connected to Christ. We are united with Christ. And he does that. He draws them back to baptism, which is a physical picture of what has happened to them internally. He draws them back there to refute to the idea that it doesn't matter if we sin. Does it matter if we sin? We get more grace. He says, think about your baptism. Think about your baptism and what is meant there. You are unified with Christ. That's what he's going to talk about here. It's just very interesting. Because a lot of us, if someone just said, "Hey," should, asked us this question, hey, should I just continue sinning? I'm not sure baptism would even like be in the top 50 thoughts, 100 thoughts that we'd even have. It's the first place Paul goes to answer that question. And here's why. Baptism displays our union with Christ. Baptism displays our death and burial with Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He's saying this. Do you not know? Do you not realize the meaning of your baptism? When, when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, do you realize what that meant? Do you realize what that represented? This is a really good question and a good starting point for us to ask ourselves or for us to ask a friend who is a Christian or a professing Christian that is planning on wandering away from the Lord, maybe not planning, is drifting away from the Lord currently? That's a good question. For someone who says, I'm just going to walk in sin, I'm going to drift away, I'm going to live how I want, a good question would be, have you been baptized? Yes, I'm a Christian, I was baptized after I was a Christian. Okay, what did your baptism mean? That would be a very, very good place to start because we have a biblical example of that's where he starts. Do you not know What it means, that you were baptized into Christ, that means you were baptized into his death. So when you were water baptized, that represented the spiritual reality that you were baptized. Baptism means, uh, well we'll talk about this next week, generally means immersion, to be immersed, to be plunged or immersed. So do you realize that you were immersed into Christ, that you were actually plunged, immersed into his death? Do you realize that? So you want to continue in sin? Okay. Do you realize that you at one point, when you became a Christian, were immersed into the death of Christ? That later was represented as you were immersed into water. You are plunged into the reality of Jesus' death. Plunged into the reality of Jesus' death. You're identifying with his death. You died with him. Paul says in Galatians 2 that you were crucified with Christ. When you became a Christian, you were crucified with Christ. Actually, it says that in verse 6 in this chapter we're looking at as well. Crucified, you die with Christ. Your baptism represents that you were united and unified and in union with Jesus Christ in His death. Craig, that sounds mysterious. Yes, it is mysterious. There is a mystery there. Because what he's really saying here is when you became a Christian, when you became in union with Jesus Christ you were like transported 2000 years prior and you die with Jesus Christ that, that that's what actually happens that you identify that that you identify with his death then wow, what is this, like the doctrine of time travel or something? What do you mean? Well, we all know this to be the case because we all say we died in Adam. He's just talked about that in the previous chapter. We all say none of us were in the garden. None of us were in the garden, but we all are affected. We are all in Adam when he sinned, and so we fell and experienced those consequences. And now, as a Christian, we were in Christ when he died. We identify, we're united with him. This is an important thing to think about, especially if you are a Christian here. This is an important thing to think about as you think about walking with the Lord in your growth in Christ, in your sanctification, that you are united with him in his death. Now, here's how we often talk about the death of Christ, and this is totally appropriate. I I preach this every week. This is all over the Bible. We should hear this daily. We're really, we should hear this truth daily. We usually talk about the death of Christ in the gospel as Jesus died for us. Like we can go back one chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it is totally biblical, totally appropriate. Probably the primary way of discussing Christ's death and our relationship to him is he died for us. But in chapter 6, Paul's saying something a little bit different. He's saying, you died with him. Do you see how that's a little bit different? He died for us in our place as our substitute. And so we can be declared righteous and declared forgiven because of what he did if we have faith in him. And become a Christian. But now, as Christians, yes, he died for us. Yes, that counts for today. But we also died with him. And that has a profound effect on how we live our lives today. Because he not only died for us, but we died with him. We were buried with him, it says. Verse 4. We were buried together with him by baptism into death. Buried with him. Christ's burial was a ratification of his death. It was, a, it was a proof. It was a demonstration. It was the, the, uh, the next step, so to speak. He, he died. He is buried before he is raised. He, he dies, and he is buried. And in the same way, we were buried with him. We died with him. We we're buried with him. There's a really, it's really true that, that we died with Christ, and that affects us. So we are immersed in his death. We are submerged In his burial, buried in his death as well. What is being communicated when that happens? So when someone is baptized, someone's immersed in the water, what is being communicated in the first place is that God has counted this person dead and buried with Jesus Christ. Now it says something about the person being baptized. Baptism says something about that person. Um, you know something about their desire to follow Christ, their, their identification with Christ, but its first statement is not what they 've done. Its first and primary statement is what God has done for them. All the verbs here are passive, that is, we 're acted upon it 's not us acting. We were baptized. We were buried. so we are being acted upon. We're, we're, we are We die with him. All of this is god 's action upon us. No one baptizes themselves. They shouldn't. Should, we don't, self-baptism is just not really a good idea. Especially so if you're like the last person left on the earth and you got this. Okay, maybe. But everyone, everyone else should be baptized by someone else. Why? Because it represents that God is the one who has acted upon you. God has... You have died with Christ and been buried with Christ. And so, when we're submerged in water, in the first place, that represents Christ's grave. We're buried with Him. It doesn't mean that I just died, but it means that I'm transported to a a tomb 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, and I'm placed there with Christ. It's Christ's grave that I'm identifying with, and that is astounding. That's astounding, that I die with Him, that I am buried with him, and it doesn't stop there. We are also raised with him. Baptism displays our union with Christ. It displays our death, our burial, and it displays our resurrection as well. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that. That means that's a purpose clause, so that in order that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We identify with His death and His burial. Why? Because we also identify with His resurrection. Just as Christ was raised, so we are raised to walk, what does he say, in newness of life. Christ has defeated the power of sin and since we are united with him, we have a new life. We walk in newness of life. Verse, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One day we will have a resurrection body. But, but even before that, right now, we still are experiencing newness of life. Now... You note here, he says that we too might walk in newness of life rather than new life. Now, we do walk in new life, but this idea of newness of life is communicating something a little bit different. If we say new, normally what's in mind is time. And what's in mind here is not necessarily time, but uh, this this may sound, hopefully I can explain this, may sound a little confusing at first, but it's not just time, but it's like mode of existence. And so here's what I mean by that. If you say, if I say, I'm newly married... What that means is that we could look on a calendar and pretty recently uh, there was a wedding and I was the groom. Okay, so that means I was newly married. Recently in time, I came to a wedding service and participated as the groom and got married. So that's newly married. But if I were to say I've been married a while and my wife and I have recently been studying God's Word and praying together and getting some counseling, and it's just really changed our marriage. There's like a newness to our marriage. What do I mean by that? Do I mean I just got married? No. I mean the mode of our marriage, our existence, the, 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 the environment of my marriage is new. That's what's being said here. You are living in a newness of life. It's a new mode that you are living in. If someone's competing in athletics and all of a sudden they turn on the burners, they're running and all of a sudden, wow, they break away from the pack. People will say, you know, he was in beast mode. That means he kicked into a new mode and he is just, whoa, look at that. He's like in a different environment, something different's going on. That's what he's saying here, not beast. But what he's saying here is you are in a different living, a different type, a different status, a different condition, and it's new. And it's characterized by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have died to sin. In Christ, we have been buried. And in Christ, we are now alive to God. And our baptism displays that union with Christ. That is really the big idea of baptism in the New Testament. Now, there are some other other ideas represented uh, in the New Testament that have to do with baptism. You know, cleansing, and there are, other, there are other ideas. But the big idea, I think, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the prominent image is uh, union with Christ. That's the big idea. So, is that found anywhere else in the Bible? That we see baptism associated with our union and connection, our vital union with Jesus. Yes, here's a couple instances. Galatians 3, if we can put that up. Galatians 3. Uh, Verse 25 says this. But now that faith has come, that's important, faith is tied to our baptism. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in, in Christ Jesus, there's the union language, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All of that is union language. You are in Christ. You are baptized, immersed into the person and work of Christ. You have put on Christ. Those are all connections with Christ. Baptized into him. Our baptism is vitally uh, connected to our vital union with Christ. Why? Because it's a physical demonstration of what has happened spiritually to us. It's an external experience and an external picture that conveys an internal reality that we've died, been buried, and raised with Jesus Christ. Okay, Colossians 2 would be another passage. Colossians 2, 11 through 13. In him, that's union language, in him. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's not talking about a physical circumcision. "...by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism." You were buried, same thing, buried with him in baptism, with him, union language, "...in which you were also raised with him, union language, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive with him. There's the language. We come to life with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So there is faith in what Christ has done, and then we identify with Christ. We are buried with him. We are raised with him. Our transgressions, that is our sins, are forgiven, and we're raised to, together with him into a new life. And this glorious beautiful, powerful event of baptism portrays this spiritual reality. That I am right with God because of what Christ has done. And God has made me unified with Christ through faith so that I now am a new person in Him. Immersed in Christ's death, submerged, buried in His death, Emerge. We emerge from the water with resurrection power. The scripture here calls us back to this union, to see this union. And it's so important because Paul is saying understanding this and seeing this and being gripped by this, it makes a difference in how you live your life. This is a whole dialogue about how do we live for God? What does holiness look like? What does it mean to follow? Can I just sin and there will be more grace? And all of a sudden he's talking to us about our union in Christ and saying, impossible, unthinkable, crazy, abhorrent, ghastly, because you have died to sin and been raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. So as a new life, you don't want to live in the death of your old life, the pursuit of sin. You want to live in a new life. So, What difference does it make? Well, we can remember our union with Christ, displayed in our baptism, and then we are to live in the power of that union with Christ. That's what he says. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying this reality should affect how you live. So people are saying, hey, can I sin? It doesn't matter. He said, no, here's what you should be thinking. You should be thinking, I'm dead. You should be reckoning that. You should be considering that. You should be believing that. I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to Jesus Christ. This is not talk yourself into it motivational speaking. He's not just saying you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it, or something like this. He's not unleashing the giant within anybody. He is, he's not saying just, you know, okay, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, dead with Christ, buried with Christ. He's not just saying some mantra that you walk along with your baby steps and then you have a new life in Christ. He's saying this is reality. The reality is that you're alive to Jesus Christ if you're a Christian because when you became a Christian, you united in his death, you united in his burial, and you're raised to walk in a new mode of living, a new circumstance, a new sense of being alive to Jesus Christ. And that's pleasing the Father with your life. That's how you're designed to live. And here's the mental picture of that. Look back at your baptism. Because that's what he says. What, What did it mean that you were baptized into Christ Jesus? What did it mean? Well, it meant union with Christ. Union with Christ. We're commanded to consider. That's really the command here is to consider yourselves dead to sin. I don't know if you've thought about that, but that's really a central way of growing in Jesus Christ. I'm all for doing stuff. We need practices. We need stuff. We need to-do lists. That's appropriate if it's based upon the gospel. But this is like number one on the to-do list and it's sort of hard to to do it sometimes, you know? It's consider. That's a to-do. Consider. Believe. Be aware. Reckon. Wake up to the reality. Oftentimes we have other things on the list that I'm supposed to go do but we don't start Where he starts with, here's where you start in the battle for sin. Think about Jesus. And not only think about Jesus, but think that you died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. That's the big to do that will make the greatest difference in our walk with the Lord. Listen, in our battle for sin, we are not to concentrate primarily on sin. We're to concentrate in the first place. We'd be very aware of sin, convicted of sin. The law reveals our sin. Hey, we just spent a lot of weeks going through the Ten Commandments. We're not changing. We still believe all that stuff we just said over the last 11 weeks. That our sin's worse than we even imagined. Okay, so we do apply the law to show us our need for a Savior, even as a Christian, But we need to primarily be looking to the work of Jesus Christ and then concentrating on our union, our unity, our identification with his death and resurrection. The pursuit of that makes all the difference. The pursuit of the reality that sin does not reign over us. That's what he says here. Look at verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, union language, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're not under the slavery of sin because of what Christ did for us. Yes. And we were in him when it happened. Yes. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And it has no longer dominion over us because we are in Christ. Down at verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. So considering, believing, thinking about these things. Kent Hughes says, that this, this command, for instance, verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. He said that's like a preventative measure towards sin. And oftentimes we're not good at preventative measures. We're good at, and this is appropriate too, when we've blown it, you know, coming back for s- s- forgiveness. So we're good at like remedial measures. 1 John one nine. if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. So we're pretty good at blowing it, sinning, rebelling, and then coming back for forgiveness, and we want to do that. What he's saying is before you even head down that road, some preventative measures can be in order. And the first preventative measure that he's given here is, what did your baptism mean? I mean, what was going on there? What did it represent? It represented the fact that you in Christ are dead to sin and alive to God. So do not let sin reign and rule over you. You are not ruled and dominated by sin. You are ruled and dominated by Jesus Christ. So in his power, because of what he's done, live in the good of that. That's a new mindset. That's a new way of thinking. It's a new approach. And it must come before other things. Like self-discipline or accountability or, you know, fill in the blanks. It must predate all of that. It must be central. We must consider who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And then there are many ways that we can, from that position and that mentality and that reality, live in newness of life, which includes things like living in community, studying the Scripture, applying the Scripture, asking for prayer, You know, holding one another accountable. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to help assist, but none of them are substitutes for realizing who we are, what Christ has done for us. This is what John Stott says about this passage on baptism. He says, Union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. I love that. We've been severed from the old and we're committed to the new. Our baptism... Stands between the two like a door between two rooms. So he says, You got two rooms. You got the old life, that's a room. You got a door, and you got the new life, that is a room. Baptism stands between the two of these, closing on the one and opening into the other. We have died and we have risen. How can we possibly live again in what we have died to? that's what Paul's saying. We have God has saved us by faith. If you've turned from your sins and believed that Jesus Christ has died for you for your sins and you believe in him, then when you believe at that point you are placed in Christ. You are die with him, you are buried with him, you are raised with him and the physical tangible you know demonstration of that is water baptism. You're not saved by baptism, you're saved by faith, but water baptism demonstrates that so you were in the old you know old life you come into the new and that baptism is like a door which demonstrates and signifies that you've been brought over here and it shut on the old and brought into the new and he's saying why would you go back like you never went through the door and live over here You, you the door you're already over here that's his point don't go back living over there in death and darkness live in life and light because you're in Jesus Christ so that's the point that he's making now What he's not saying is there's no temptation. What he's not saying is you'll never sin. What he's not saying is that there is no flesh. Because we battle the temptations of the flesh which call us back to the old life. We battle that until we die. And we will sin in this life until we die. So he's not denying that sin is present through the flesh. He's not denying that. What he's denying is is that sin is your master and reigns over you and that you live under its dominion as if if nothing's ever happened. He says that's impossible because you died, were buried, and raised with Christ. And that is your reality. That's not fantasy. That's not positive confession. That's reality. And so live in reality is what he's saying. And as a reminder of that reality, think back on your baptism, the physical sign and seal of the spiritual reality that we were joined to Christ and that we are one with him through faith <clears throat> in him. Well, how do we apply this? Uh, hopefully I've kind of just given some application. We just live with this mindset and consider. That's a command. Consider these truths and then seek to live in the good of them. That's part of it. Uh, another thing would be if you haven't been baptized as a believer, um, well, you should. Not only you should, you get to. I mean, that's, that's great news. You get to. You get to. You can be baptized as a believer. Because as a believer, union with Christ, a baptism as a believer is a baptism that recognizes union with Christ. If you're an unbeliever, you're not united to Christ. And so, if you have not been baptized as a believer, I'd encourage you to do so. Out of obedience to God? Yes. Um, To declare yourself publicly a follower of Christ? Yes. But ultimately, to signify this reality that you have been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a statement of what God has done to you, what God has done for you, what God has done in you. And it's that living, vivid, vital truth that, that you have the privilege to identify with Christ Uh, in a tangible experience that roots you and connects you to what happened already to you spiritually. And and that is a, uh, that's a glorious experience and a a high privilege, and you can do it August 8th. After next Sunday, we'll have a sign-up and give some instruction on how we're going to do that. But that'll be the, the next baptism, and then, like I said, we probably will do one again in September and on a regular basis. So, as, on an as-needed, regular basis. So if you haven't been, you get to, you can. You can experience the joy of that. If you have been baptized as a believer, then I think this passage would say, maybe we should think about it a little more regularly. And, and not, I'm not talking about just thinking about the event, but thinking about what the event means. Maybe we should think about that a little bit more regularly, because it communicates something that's more true than the lies of the devil so when you're tempted to sin you think I want to do this this is the right thing this is a good thing this is enticing I'm living in sin I'm dominated by sin sin is ruling over me no the truth is what happened in what what is represented rather when you went under that water and came out of it that's the reality that you're living in newness of life that's a lie that sin is your master Jesus Christ is your master. I, I've been thinking a lot more in recent weeks um, about my baptism. Now, I was baptized as a young person, and, and I'm now an old person, but I, could, I can remember. I was baptized, thankfully, old enough that I can remember it, and... Um, I can remember literally coming up out of the water. Now, this was physical. I'm not saying this was like a uh, Holy Spirit miraculous thing. But coming out of the water, the first thing, there was this light that that came down into the baptistry where I was baptized. I was baptized in a church building. And I just remember coming up and seeing this light, physical light. I'm not trying to hyper-spiritualize this. But seeing this physical light, I just remembered that. I remember literally coming out in the water, coming down on me. I can remember that very, very distinctly. Now, I do not know the exact moment of my regeneration. And I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus says you don't need to remember the exact moment of your regeneration because in John 3 says the wind blows however it will. And we don't know where it's blowing, where it's going to, or where it's coming from, but we know its effects. And so I know the effects of my regeneration, my conversion, um, but I don't remember the exact moment. But I do remember the physical Sign and seal and experience of that in that invisible reality, and that was my baptism so i 've been thinking about it. coming up i 'm living in newness of life now because of what Jesus has done for me, and there is a power in that there is a power in that sometimes we can think in other ways of conversion, you know um, but 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 Paul calls us to look at baptism you know paul doesn 't say. Should you live in sin anymore? Well, just remember walking down an aisle. That's, that's not what he says. I walked down an aisle, by the way, so I'm not critiquing that necessarily. But he doesn't say walk down an aisle, and that's how you, that's your sign. Well, what that means is that you walk from the back of the room to the front of the room. I don't know when you were regenerated, halfway in between, before, a week earlier. I, I don't know. But but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say think of the time you raised your hand at an evangelistic rally with every. Head bowed and every eye closed. Think about that moment, and that that's not what he says. Now you may have done that and gotten regenerated, and thank the Lord for that. We here say regularly, hey, there's care group leaders and wives down here. If you'd like to know what it means to become a Christian, come down and they'll talk to you about that and pray for you. Great. Walk down front. We're all for that. But that's not going to be the living symbol, the, the the significant representation of your union with Christ. That doesn't represent union with Christ. Walking down the aisle does not represent union with Christ. Joining a church does not represent union with Christ. Signing a card does not represent union with Christ. Praying a prayer does not represent union with Christ. Baptism represents union with Christ. And that's why it's in the Scripture as the point at which we're drawn to say, this is the place where I remember what God did for me and in me. And I want to live in the good of that spiritual reality that I'm united with Christ, demonstrated in that physical expression of baptism. So, it's a sign of freedom. It's a sign of new life. It's a sign that the reign of the devil has been broken over your life. And so thus, it's it's worth our remembering and celebrating that we are living in a new mode, newness of life. And I believe that as we meditate on what union with Christ means, our death, burial, and resurrection with him, our forgiveness of sins, our, our, the, the power of the Spirit to help us experience a newness of life. As we do that, and as we consider that I'm not in this old room, I'm in this new one. As we consider, I'm not dead, but I'm alive. As we consider, I'm not in darkness, but I'm in light. As we consider, I didn't die and not sitting in the bottom of the baptistry, but I came out of it because Christ came out of the grave, and that's the reality for me. As we think about that, as we meditate upon that, you know, I think the goal should be that sin becomes more absurd. Sin is not only evil, uh, it's foolish, it's evil, it's absurd. That's what Paul says. How could you be pursuing death when you're, when you're alive? Makes no sense. So it's absurd. As we realize this, sin becomes increasingly repulsive because we see what Christ did for us and what it cost Him. As we meditate on this, we see our new life and there's an increasing joy and desire to follow Christ as we live in the grace of what He has done for us. So thinking about what He's done for us in Christ and our union with Him makes a significant difference. It changes our perspective Because of what he did for us. And we can remember that. That's what happened when we were converted. And that's what was represented. When we were baptized. Because there. Is the demonstration. Of our union with Christ. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk. In newness of life. Let's pray. Oh God we love newness of life because we love you you have reached down in our darkness and given us new life Lord you have joined us with yourself so that we are united in your death as this passage says and your resurrection and I just pray for us as a people as a church that we would live the newness of life that you have ordained that not only ordained but provided for us may this reality of a new heart The reality of the indwelling spirit make all the difference for us as we face tomorrow, Lord. We pray that tomorrow that we would consider ourselves, as you say here, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I pray that would be the waking thought of every one of us tomorrow, that we would be certainly aware of our sins and our failures, but we would be more aware of what you have done for us and that the resurrection life of Christ would grant us the grace to say yes to you and no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I pray for that. Lord, we pray that we would use the means that you've given to put to death sin in our lives, and we pray that we would use those means with this perspective, that we're alive to you and dead to sin. God, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you. Perhaps this was confusing and they don't even know what it means to know you, I pray that you would reveal your, your Savior. Father, I pray that you would reveal the Savior and your sacrifice, and that you would grant new life, even right now, to those in the room that have yet to meet you. I pray they would turn from their sin. I pray they would believe in Jesus as the sacrifice, the Savior, and that you would place them in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. God, thank you for what... I I trust is in store in our future. Lord, we want to pray as a church that there would be many, many, many baptisms because there would be many, many, many conversions. Lord, by your grace, would would you send us out and would you bring in many who move from darkness to light by the power of the Spirit through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for that, Lord. We ask you for that. Lord, send us, we pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website, gracechurchfrisco.org.